Welcome everyone. We're sitting in the lower stairwell gallery, probably the darkest spot in the whole Adam Art Gallery. And around us are various works where Peter Roche and Linda Bose exploit darkness and play with light and then also use devices to limit visibility, including wearing blindfolds. So I'm sitting here in the darkness and I'm going to speak about two works today or read notes by the artists. Um, firstly, I'm going to actually read their accounts of this work to my right, which is a performance undertaken at a small gallery space called 100 Square Meters. And I'm going to read both Peter's account and the responses of two audience members. This is the longer of the two readings and will be at least 15 minutes in length. And then I'll briefly, and at the end, read a shorter text by Winston Kernow about the work on my left, which was performed two years later in January 1983. I'm going to start now, and I won't interrupt myself with further interpolations again. The first text is by Peter Roche. Performance, a work by Peter Roche and Linda Bose, 100 square meters, Federal Street, Auckland. Work performed on the 14th of April, 1981. We did it three nights ago at 100 square meters in Federal Street, as was planned. Well, not as planned, but we produced something anyway. I'll talk around it a bit because I don't feel ready to go straight into it. The day before, I ordered a large triangular sheet of glass, quarter inches thick. It was to be cut and delivered to the space the next day before 10 a.m. The sheet was to cost about $150. Well, I had some strange feelings in me when ordering the bloody thing, so I went and tossed it around in my head over a beer. I couldn't quite fathom what it was, and so I decided to order it anyway. That night I slept, but not at all well. Something happened. I was working in my sleep as I had been all week, tossing ideas around semi-consciously. Sometimes I can grasp onto them and sometimes not. It's a strange process. It's also very hard work doing this sort of thing, especially for one who really enjoys an untroubled sleep. But I do find it productive and it's not as if I have a choice. The last week was very intense and drained us a lot. Often I find that I can think a lot clearer when I'm tired physically tired. My thought patterns become a lot more flexible than say when I'm too consciously struggling with a problem. It's a hard thing to control. Well, it all worked out for the better. I dreamt that I was to meet someone at 1 p.m. and looked at my watch to find it already 1.60 p.m. The panic probably brought this into focus. Things started to fall together from then. Somehow it became clearer to me what the piece was about. 
It had something to do with the distance between people inside an ordered pattern of interaction. I didn't need this piece of glass anymore. I lay awake for hours discussing this with Linda and hoping like hell they hadn't cut the bloody thing. Luckily, for my pocket, they had not when I rang in the morning and I cancelled it. I'd also ordered a small triangular mirror. For some reason, I didn't cancel this and ended up with three of them, slightly different shapes and sizes, but all triangular. I don't quite know what this triangular thing is all about, but it's been with us since this, this soliloquy piece. It ended up that we used all three mirrors, but I'll enlarge upon that later on. In actual fact, the entire performance only began to take any real shape a couple of hours before it was scheduled to begin. But I don't see any real beginnings or endings either. So I'll begin now by going through some of the things that happened that day, as much as I can remember anyhow. We both worked really hard, not in setting up the space, that kind of stuff, but mentally. We didn't have to set the stage because we were unsure of our needs. We just swept the floor, and then I went and got the mirrors. We had very little idea of what our needs were to be. I guess I see a change developing in the way we work. It's very dangerous and must be treated with caution and respect. It's no longer the case where we have worked on a piece, worked out the situation, considered thoroughly technical needs, moved into the space and set the thing in motion. It's becoming a far more real situation now. The definitions of a piece are very slim. The performance itself is really the most concentrated of a whole series of activities before and after. There are no formal dividing lines, and if there are, it's only a convenience. It brings up the whole question of advertising a performance. I guess it's a matter of being able to make some kind of estimate upon your own work rate and how you feel the situation is moving. I find that interesting at the moment. It's like everything is being used, is being fused into the work. This whole thing started to formalize itself or become recognizable with the soliloquy piece in Melbourne. The thing which fascinated me most was not the actual performance, which was interesting, but the way in which we worked getting it all together on the final day. In this more recent case, it was a lot more scary. We had previously booked some video and sound gear, which accounts for the misleading information on the postcard. That morning, we cancelled this gear also. It's like a continual guessing game. Some things fall into place and others just don't seem to fit so well. I had bought about 70 candles a week or so ago. I just go and buy things if it feels okay. I had a hunch that we would end up using these. We did. It's really quite unpredictable how things work out somehow. I always am trying not to force the work or, or to go anywhere, but would rather it just went on its own accord where it wants to go. In many ways, this is harder. What happened in, in the end was such a surprise, it gave us quite a buzz. It's raining now and I'm still really tired. Been going out too much, probably but I do feel like writing a bit. 
In fact, it's been bloody difficult to keep myself from writing, restraining myself, because it just hasn't felt right until now. I don't like writing too soon after a piece, especially if I'm feeling really good about it. It's always so vague in my head. It needs time to realize its true self. It takes up time to realize exactly what it is that one is doing, sometimes months. The same thing goes on for an audience. I saw Tony yesterday, only briefly, and he said to me that both he and Judy had gone away from the piece feeling really pissed off, fucked off with the whole thing. Although I feel this to be an unfair and rash criticism, I do understand what he meant. It takes time to come to grips with this kind of work. But he did say that it all came together for both of them, and quite suddenly, a couple of days after the piece. That's enough for the moment. I don't want to take it too fast. For me, it's a difficult piece, and it's going to take a while to work through it again. I find it a compelling piece, so there's no point in rushing things. These are notes from my diary, which I will resume tomorrow, probably. Okay, so where do we go from here? That day, we spent a lot of time going back to the space, never very sure of what was happening, and never doing very much there, worrying a lot. I mean, the day was getting on, and we hadn't seemingly got anywhere. We couldn't even decide little things, like whether to use the overhead lights. There's a pub right next door, so we spent a lot of time walking around the empty space and then going over for a quick beer or two. This went on all day. We would try small things like arranging candles, but would never really, could never really decide what it was that we wanted. We placed one of the mirrors in a corner with a candle behind it, with the reflective side facing inwards. We assumed that once the candle was lit, it would cause that corner of the room to glow. But of course, we had no way of knowing this because, because of all the daylight that was in the space. Anything to do with the candles was guesswork only. Very frustrating. Just could not get the feel of the situation. At this stage, we had no idea of what activities were to take place in that space. A lot of possibilities would come to mind, but they all seemed so false and nice too easy, drawing too much from the successes of previous performances and not really coming to grips with the situation at hand. But that's okay. There was a lot of pressure on us then. We ended up by going home and having some tea. That wasn't very enjoyable either. I just wanted to get back to the space. Couldn't take my mind off the bloody thing. I was really worried. We even considered, half as a joke, calling the whole thing off and just not turning up. But that wouldn't have been any good either. I just couldn't do that sort of thing. I've got to go through with something once it has started. Seven o'clock, we headed back to town, had a quick beer and walked into the space again. Horrible, just not right at all. We were getting more and more confused, but things started to happen from here on in. The sun had gone down, and the space was in darkness. Lately, I found spaces really interesting without any artificial lights. You can feel them better. There are less distractions. 
Anyhow, the first thing we did after turning off the lights was to light the candle behind the mirror. We cleared the floor of all the other candles and it felt good. It created just the effect we had imagined it would. It was beautiful. The whole space in darkness with this one corner glowing. The only thing that felt good up till then. That really brought our spirit back. But there was a lot more work to do. At last we had begun. There at the side of the space, two large roller-side barn doors. At the front of the space is your usual door with one or two steps onto the street. It's a back street, by the way. At the side, there is a loose gravel driveway. Inside, a large, uneven concrete floor. It really is one of the most difficult spaces we have worked with. Maybe it's our approach at the moment and not the space which makes things so difficult. Well, we opened up the barn doors as well as the front door. This really did it. Coming through the side doors was all this yellow light from a street lamp out the front. The space was really starting to take shape. We wet the entire floor, shoveling out buckets of water from the tap in the back area. The light was glistening and patterns of intense light were shooting across the floor. The space was relatively dark, but the floor was beginning to have a real presence. That was interesting, because a lot of the time I'd been looking toward the mezzanine floor for possibilities. Well, we had succeeded in bringing light from outside of the space inside. The whole space was beginning to take shape as a kind of thoroughfare a bit like a bus terminal, a shelter, a place of transition. Our problem now was to harness the available light somehow, creating focal points within that space. The light was coming into the space in one direction. We had the other two mirrors to make use of and things began to fall into place. We could catch the light of the street lamp and redirect it into the space. We positioned one near the barn doors and cast a triangular light pattern onto the wall opposite. The base of the triangle rested on the floor. The other mirror was placed at the base of the wall, most lit by the incoming light, and reflected a triangle of light onto the wall opposite, the darkest area of the space. Without realizing it immediately, we had found a focal point within the space, a place from which a shadow could be cast onto the two triangles of light at the same time. It was the place where the two rays of light reflected from the mirror intersected. So that became an area of interaction. All the other candles were dumped in a heap near the corner with the candle behind it. We went for another drink to think about what was happening. There was only about an hour before the thing was scheduled to get underway. Well, seeing as the space was beginning to feel less and less like an indoor space, we decided to make use of the street also. Federal Street, quite a long, not very well lit street, with several sections to it. At one end of the street it became one way, kind of like an alley. It crossed a couple of main streets. The gallery is situated near one end. 
we would walk the length of the street alone, back and forth at our own rates. We would pass through the space, once on the way up the street and once on the way down. Each time we would change direction, we would pass through the space at some stage. A lot of interesting things happened to us when walking in that street. Remember, it was late at night. Linda had to put up with the usual boorish advances and suggestions from men. I got paranoid about people who I would pass several times. They, of course, had no idea of what the fuck was going on. So in a sense, their patterns also were being intruded upon. We were both working alone, but in the same space. Our activities were similar, but separate. So we were working alone. We would pass each other in the street at fairly regular intervals, but we were alone. There were a surprising number of people who turned up. A bit off-putting, really, because I feel most of them turned up for the wrong reasons. I hope I'm being fair here. Anyhow, I would enter the space through one of the doors, light a candle from the one behind the mirror, and place it in that area where its shadow would be cast against both triangular light patches. After a considerable period of time, this small area became a solid wax triangle. Not a geometric one, but it had roughly that shape. Candles had extinguished themselves as others were ignited. Linda was also moving in and out of the space, lighting a candle and placing it in less ordered patterns throughout the space. She was working to her own system, also using the lights reflected from the mirrors, but one light at a time. The performance would have taken about one and a half to two hours. I was surprised at how people stayed with the piece. I was also surprised at some of the people who left after only staying with it for 10 minutes or so. And now there's the question of documentation. I guess this writing is as good as any, as I have not yet seen any photographs. The light was extremely low, and I do not expect any great results from this. It also brings up the whole question of whether a photographic documentation is the most suitable answer for such a piece. I will leave that one for a while. Another point. Most people stayed put inside the gallery. They were waiting for something to happen. That was surprising, as most of the activity was taking place outside of that space on the street. It may have made a lot more sense to them had they come out and realized the system we were working with. It would have placed the activities that were going on inside the gallery in a far broader context. So that's the end of Peter's account. And now I'm going to read from um, the issue of Parallax, which documents three of their performance works, which was edited by Winston Curnow and published in 1983. Uh, the 100 square meters performance was one of the three pieces that was documented. And I'm going to launch in and give you responses from two audience members. Uh, one of them is Winston Curnow, and the other is Tony Green, who is also a keen follower of Peter and Linda's works. 
and I'm just leaping in and taking out a couple of extracts of their voices and their responses to this piece. The first extract is by Winston Kernow. Peter Roche and Linda Bose at 100 square meters, April 14, 1981, 10 p.m. A time chosen to discourage large audience, rumor had it. Another rumor was we wouldn't be allowed in. Tim Walker told Liz Eastman, who told me. I thought I'd take the kitchen steps in case we had to peer through the window. But it was okay. Of course it was. Tony always was a sucker for rumours. Something to do with his poetic imagination, I'll be bound. I wanted to check whether he actually did take the kitchen steps or not. And there are, and are there photos. But he is at this writing in another country, as incidentally I was when this performance took place. End of Whiston's quote, and now I'm reading Tony Green's response. We arrived with Ron Brownson and walked in the big side doors, wide open slide back doors, and sat down on the stairs. There was water on the floor, almost a pool of it, which soaked in during the evening and almost dried out, but no one was about to sit down on it. There were never more than 20 watching, standing at the back by the office, round the walls on the right of us, or on the stairs, or by the big doors. Peter and Linda came on intermittently through either the front or side doors, couldn't guess which it might be, since they could go around the building or through it so easily, and through the audience. The point of the wide open door was the street light shining on the floor and wall two triangular mirrors, one on that wall, another by the door, reflected small triangles of orange light onto the walls, one on the right, another just visible looking over the stair rail on the wall next to it. These turned out to be very important to what Peter was doing. In the corner on the left of the wall with the big open door and the back wall, there was a triangle of mirror face to the walls, reflecting light into the corner with one candle there behind it. Greg Burke was there with his camera, dressed in black and white and tennis shoes. Peter was in black and white with tennis shoes, Linda in black parka and jeans. Peter takes a candle and lights it from the one in the corner and cupping it with his right hand to stop it blowing out, places it carefully in its own hot wax on the wet floor in the area of the intersection of the reflected beams from the two little mirrors. The street light was strong enough to cast a shadow of the candle, even though it was damped down by reflection from the mirror. The shadow of the air moving with the heat showed clearly too. The candle he lights comes from the heap of them by the mirror in the corner, a large heap of candles waiting to be used and which kept everyone expectant that it might be a very long performance because he took a long time between lighting and placing candles and the lengths of the intervals were impossible to guess, even though you could see the candles burning down, visually measuring duration and forming pools of wax on the floor. Finally, he had two big ones and the other ten were no more than than little flames in a pool of wax. What else? 
Linda came on sometimes, twice. That is, they weren't simply taking turns in her own time and doing something else, placing candles mostly in the beam of light from the doorway and further apart from one another than Peter's. He had awful trouble lining his up and at one point adjusted the mirror near the doors. Hers went down irregularly, although they ended up in a kind of big triangle, again about ten, I think. She came on and always checked the short wall where his triangle of light with the shadows was to see the effect of something it seemed very quickly. And she didn't necessarily stick her candles down with wax, just stood them up. One fell down and she didn't pick it up. It just burned lying down. Another blew out. She didn't relight it. Ron Brownson early on got up and lit a candle and placed it near the mirror in the corner and left. Earlier, two people had lit cigarettes from the candle. Peter and Linda took no notice of what Ron had done, left it as it was. Anyone could have got up and joined in, though one, no one did apart from him. The space slowly illuminated by candles, the floor slowly drying from the wind mostly, a glimmering of light, of shadows, changing contra the fixed glare of the streetlight sodium tube. The pool of water changed by the strange fixed flux of cooling melted wax flows. Those are the material things changing before your eyes. People chatting in twos and threes all through this and so slow. We were wondering if they were going to do anything else or whether it was to be a long, unimaginably long performance, lighting of candles all through the night, filling the floor with fields of wax. The building was more like an open passage, a derelict, sheltered corner of the city. Car noises, street light shadows, Peter and Linda walking through from front to side door and the other way absolutely undramatized as far as the relationship between performers goes. No build-up and change, just an indefinite series of similar events piling one on another and open-ended. Linda coming in and sitting on the stairs, talking with two women. Peter coming in and going upstairs, returning with a bottle of beer. Is that it? I had to ask. Yes, I think so, or yes, I think that's enough. Peter says, about as low-key as non-entertainment as it can be, slow as you please, difficult for the audience, the discomfort of standing for an hour and a half watching something on the floor, not finding it easy to work out the measures being used for the placing the candles or for the exiting and entrancing, nothing much going on, left with your own thoughts for the most part. And a final extract from Whiston to finish this particular account. Staying power. I know of no audience with more or with such a readiness for just about anything. I like to share in that attentiveness. With performances, you're on full alert. They're onces, so there are no second chances which isn't to say there's strain, no attention. It's real time, face it, ordinary time, the rest's theatre. 
or anxiety about what it means. On the contrary, if anything, like the New York poet who told Mike Morrissey, he immediately got suspicious if he understood what he was hearing at a poetry reading. These pe people positively enjoy testing their negative capabilities, which is to say they're serious about being an audience. I like, too, the confidence. They've got no props, tickets, intervals, aisles, seasons and the like, just a role they're determined to play. And that's not easy for roles want props. Tony wrote of Peter and Linda coming on stage. He meant that's why he and the others stayed in the gallery, missed part of the action. 100 square meters isn't a theater. It's not even an art gallery anymore. Performance works are ephemeral, but so too is much else in this world of ours, grasshopper. For instance, the remains of the old gas works, the site of night piece, has been leveled, is covered now with construction workers' huts. They're raising a temple there. But what was 51 Federal Street built for in the first place? Barn doors? Just what are we referring to? This is real space. But for all that the mere agreement to assume roles in this place at this time brings more to bear than could be easily reckoned with. Forgetting for the moment the performance props, the candles with their long history of ritual and mirrors. I was in San Francisco at the time. There was an art space there called 80 Langton Street, you see. That was its address. Address? Okay. Okay, on the evening of April 11, I went there quite frequently and took notes. That evening, I went to hear a Bill Fontana concert. Two works, motion through space as a way of changing pitch and wave spiral. To get there and back, I had to pass by the Greyhound Terminal and Lyle Tuttle's Tattoo Museum. It's not exactly the Tenderloin, but there's an edge broken glass and bodies on the sidewalk. It's poorly lit and it was a wet night. All of which could have come to mind to the mind of someone at 100 square meters on the night of the 14th. I'm talking about the night mind of the city. And that's the end. That I think brings this work so much to life and it it extends it durationally and spatially so extensively into a, you know, into connections to earlier works, into the days and weeks before the performance, and then what comes after, and then through Whiston's and Tony's accounts, the coming to the space and the leaving it, and bringing to the space thoughts of other spaces and other occasions. But then what they actually did with the space was very sculptural, you know, um, articulating the space with light and using water to create, you know, reflections. Uh, they really, but at the same time recognizing that it was just a, a point of transition. I, I find that work particularly, um, it's kind of frustrating in that uh, it's not clear that they know what they're going to do. But on the other hand, it's quite a miracle that it all comes together in the end mm -hmm. and they feel actually quite buzzy about it.
and they and they're allowed to do their own thing within it within the parameters of the piece so Linda's doing her thing and he's doing his and they're different but they're still using the same ingredients okay I'm just going to quickly read this it's not as long um, the reason why I'm reading this one as well is it's worth reading but it's also down here and I'm not going to come down here again the rest are going to be upstairs so I thought while we're in the dark and we're using light um, and darkness and visibility and invisibility or blindness and sight let's keep these two together so there is a reason for them being shared so the second reading is actually from a letter by Winston Kernow to Tony Green and his partner Judy and it was written on the 27th of January in 1983 from his home in Birkenhead, Auckland. Tony and Judy I guess were overseas. He must have very recently seen the performance. Uh, uh, we don't have a specific date for the performance but it took place at a venue called Space in central Auckland in January 1983. Again, it's simply called Performance. And we don't have any writing by Peter or Linda about this particular work, so this is the only account that we've got. This was visually the most dramatic piece they've done. Interesting then, they were blindfolded throughout the action, as usual, quite simple. Both stand blindfolded with their backs to a pillar. P with his right arm out at shoulder height. Linda with her left. They cast large shadows on the wall. P's almost touches the ceiling, their arms cutting through the pillars. Then one of them walks slowly and carefully straight ahead, still with arm out towards the wall, hits it drops the arm, waits a few minutes, and then walks back, backwards to the pillar. Peter lost his way once or twice, but mostly they were close enough to feel it with a hand. The striking things, the shadows. When P walks slowly straight ahead, his shadow gets smaller rapidly. It seems the faster happening around and moves to the left. Linda's, of course, moves the other way. Mostly, both of them are standing still, either at the wall or a pillar, but sometimes they're moving together, one forward, one back, both forward or back, or the movement of one follows hard on that of another. There's no pattern set, as usual, but those times are very dynamic and much in contrast to the still times. The shadows are very deep and sharper edges, although there are no other lights in the space. They are the deepest darks there. The sense of speed has to do with the angle of the shadow's movement, like they're going away into the distance. This piece seemed to be about the performers not knowing how they appear to others, to the audience. As with the last piece, they saw nothing of the performance. But in this case, and for the first time, they're involved in depicting, in making illusions, shadow play, other selves. 
The thing is, the shadows behave very differently from P and L. In their blindfolds, they're like Indians or something. Linda's hands out from her sides to keep her balance as she tries to keep to a straight path. Those are the hands of a kung fu street fighter taking the measure of his or her opponent. These shadows gain and lose power and authority constantly, whereas Peter and Linda are the same handicapped, cautiously moving types all the time. The shadows are fictive projections of performers produced by them without their knowing. A cool piece, but very elegant, on a summer's eve, 9.10 to 10.10 of a Thursday night, noises off of nightlife windows open. Space has ceiling fans, them going round. It's actually a trendy sort of space, a touch of New York about the pressed tin ceiling and the row of pillars down the middle. The walls are match-lined though, and the whole interior is painted a very pale green. P&L used all this and worked off it. They were all in white again, their formal dress. P had a thin tie on and black kung fu shoes. All white, black shadows, or pale green, match lining, not bad, eh? As the fans kept a turning, and there's these pillars, you see classical elegance, touch of the old south, the warm summer air, and the fans kept a turning. The greenish wall is matte and soft, certainly round the edges of the projected area. There's an area of overlap, a strange light there. The right-hand projector is less powerful, actually, and also makes a different shaped and coloured area from that in which P is working. Linda's shadow is less deep. The floor is polyurethaned and thus glo gloss plus. There's the direct light from the projectors which sit on the floor and all the reflection of what's on the wall. The brightest, whitest light that's on each of the pillars, this side of them, the lower half, so you have that brightest spot in the space, and the shadow of the pillar, the deepest, darkest spot in the space. The greenish wall sets off the whites of P&L's clothes. I was surprised how quickly the piece went. It imposed no strain at all on me, no change of gears, working my way into it. It was perhaps the most comfortable, entertaining, ooh, piece I've seen of theirs. The pace was slow but even. Neither of them waited long before moving forward or back. There was so much to see. This visual richness of what was going on seems to the point of the piece. Viewers look, performers move, act. Viewers sit still, projecting themselves into the situations, the actions of the performers. Here, the other projectors add, the other projectors add the further transference. The performers project themselves into the situation of the shadows. I was less involved in projecting onto Linda and Peter what I felt they felt than usual. One reason why the piece was cool. Because the shadows distracted me so, split and complicated my response. I did watch how they approached the wall, sometimes in shorter steps, in apprehension, 
how even though they clearly became increasingly familiar with the distance, how almost every time the shock of meeting the wall was visibly registered by their bodies, how P's angle of approach would be off and this would increase the shock. Also his shoes had plastic soles and when he hit the backboard it sounded. P more often gave the impression of someone walking into something, smack. Linda was more careful and had rubber soles and got her angle right. When she reached the wall, both hands would go to it and she'd almost caress it, frequently stand a while with palms flat to it before crossing them in front of her. Also, I saw how her shoulders would go down. She'd relax, let go, place her forehead against the wall. Unlike Peter, Linda appears at times to be totally relaxed, standing at the wall, having met with wall and shadow. Sometimes it seemed an intimacy had been established between actual and shadow self. I felt cut off from this tete-a-tete. Linda's hand movements on the wall encouraged such a reaction. Peter kept his hands hanging at his sides. Both, I've said, moved over the floor with some uncertainty throughout. All, especially Peter, and this above, was, about, was what inflected the shadow telescoping movements. Peter's wobble would become a lunge, a lope, a swagger. If his head came forward, his shoulders seemed more immense and he loomed larger, taking over us all. Going back to the wall, as I say, was a meeting up with, a cutting down to size, so it, it would also seem a situation of shame stood in the corner. The fast movement of the shadow, in some, had a powerful sense of purpose, direction, dynamic, which the blindfolded performers lacked entirely. And that's the end. I like the way that Whiston reads this particular piece where he uh, suggests that the shadows are pictorial, they are illusions, and that they have a kind of life of their own in contradistinction to the performers. So the performers can't even see what it is that they've made. And they are sort of clumsy and bumbling in the space while the shadows are growing and, and shrinking in a beautiful, confident rhythm. And it's, in my view, Whiston's response is to feel more disconnected from the performance because he sees that the person and the shadow are in interaction and he's outside of that. So it has a much more kind of representational content than a performance where two people are interacting eye to eye, body to body, and audiences are perceiving that interaction and projecting themselves into it. So this has a kind of pictorial distance that the other works don't quite have. But of course, the result of that is that it's particularly beautiful. He describes it as cool and elegant, and I think the pictures absolutely capture that. You know, I think it's some of the best documentation just because it's so dramatic.